Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, brother. Good morning, church. Uh, the first order of business for me is, uh, well, it's all a joy. Uh, preaching is a joy, but I have the pleasure of drawing your attention to the rose uh, on the baptismal font there. That rose is to welcome a new uh, little boy into this world, and that little boy happens to be my grandson. Um, so, uh, Emily and Daniel, thank I had nothing to do with it, I promise. So, Theodore August Lancaster, uh, he was born into the world a week ago, Friday, and um, it's amazing how a new little human being kind of renews the whole household. Um, Emily and Daniel and Elliot and Theodore live with Amy and I and Ellie, and uh, for the first time, I, I should know, the, for the first time in my family experience, uh, the, the males in my household um, outnumber the females. Um, <laughs> So we're, we're four to three right now, so, uh, so anyway, um, but anyway, it's, it's what a joy, what, a, what an awesome experience to just to hold him. We gazed into one another's faces, and I assure you his was more beautiful than mine, and, uh, and, and it was just, I did that for like an hour one day this week. I just gazed into his eyes, and this new creature that God knit together in his mother's womb, who happens to be my grandson, is just... It's awe-inspiring. So, so anyway, we are in a sermon series um, of encounters with Jesus, and uh, we're in a little sub-series of one called Uncommon Truths. And this morning, I draw your attention to the last book of the Bible, um, Revelations 2. I'm in a men's group. I have the privilege of being in a men's group, and we have been studying, we've just begun to study the book of Revelations and Revelation. See, I call it Revelations. That's not even its title. It's Revelation, the revelation to John. And uh, so we're, we're all learning. Um, 
But the text that I share with you this morning uh, is a result of a very uncommon meeting, um, an uncommon gathering, and, a, and a, a rather striking uncommon truth as well. So, so that's where we are. Give you a little context. Um, this letter, it's one of seven letters that Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, dictates to the Apostle John, who is likely in his upper 80s, um, some commentators even think maybe 90. Uh, this is the Apostle John. This is the, the one apostle of the 12 that um, was not uh, martyred, you know, through execution for his faith. Although church history does say that the Roman emperor, Titus Flavius Domitian, attempted to boil him in oil. And somehow uh, there was divine intervention and he was spared. So the, uh, the emperor's decision then was just, okay, if I can't kill him, I'll just put him somewhere where he'll have no influence. And so like Alcatraz is to California, like Australia was for Great Britain, uh, about 35 miles off the uh, western coast of modern-day Turkey is a rock called the Isle of Patmos. And I believe there is a copper mine there. And, uh, and, and he was, that, that was a penal colony for Rome. And that's where the emperor put John thinking he would have no more influence over the world <laughs> if he puts him there. So what I love is, is this is the apostle that, that Jesus dearly loved, right? In the Gospel of John, he describes himself as being the one, the apostle who Jesus dearly loved. And you get the impression from the Gospels that Jesus and John had, they had an affinity. They had a close relational bond. And, and some commentators think that John was probably the youngest of the 12 apostles. And you can kind of understand why a teacher who gathers 12 men knowing that they're going to be called to do very difficult things would have maybe a special affinity for the very youngest of them. Um, but, but this is John, and he's lived a full life. He walked with Jesus. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, again, church history tells us that John uh, was instrumental in planting the church in the city of Ephesus, which was a coastal city, a trade city, again, in modern-day Turkey on the, on the west coast. Um, of the Aegean Sea, and it's the same Ephesus that Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. So um, church history tells us that John lived there after Jesus ascended and went back to heaven. And guess who lived with John? Uh, if you go to Turkey and look at some of the religious sites there in Ephesus, you'll find the home of Mary, um, Jesus' mother. And why is that significant? Because we know from the gospel that Jesus on the cross bleeding to death, dying, looked at John and looked at his mother, who were both present watching him be executed. Remember that very poignant, powerful moment when he said, you know, John, your mother, mother, your son, John. And that, that, that was the time at which um, Jesus basically gave to John the charge of his earthly mother. And so church history tells us that they lived in Ephesus for a time. So, What's so uncommon about this letter is that the apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos 
And it says in Revelation 1 that on the Lord's day, John was in the spirit. Okay, just stop for a minute. Where are you today? <laughs> it's the Lord's day. And my prayer is, is that we are, um, that the Holy Spirit is moving, uh, moving certainly through the hearts of believers, but also moving in this place where his word is being preached. And quite honestly, I'm gonna stop right here and pray because unless the Holy Spirit continues to work in my heart and mind and in your heart and mind, this could be a human effort of a sermon and I don't want that to be the case. So let's pray for just a second. Father God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would come and that you would take your words and teach them to each of our hearts. Meet us where we are this morning. We need you. We need your truth. We need your encouragement, your strengthening. We need the hope that comes from your word. So Holy Spirit, would you open up our minds in a supernatural way and help us see that which you want us to learn this morning? Not what Chuck Berry says, but what through me can illuminate and reveal and invigorate and give us strength and hope and direction. So Father, come by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So John is on the Isle of Patmos. It's the Lord's day and he's in the spirit. So we get the impression that he's in a meditative, prayerful state, right? And what does Jesus do? This, this, this Jesus who has been gone now, physically speaking, for decades, decades. And has John paid the price for being a follower of Jesus? Yes, he has, but I doubt if that's his perspective. His perspective is that he has had the incredible privilege of knowing the Messiah personally, walking with him, being taught by him, um, being present in times like, yes, the crucifixion, but also uh, the, the ascension, right? Also uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus begins to uh, reflect uh, a sliver of the glory of God. He's emanating light and who appears but Abraham and Moses and John's there witnessing that. So I imagine that John doesn't look at cost for following Jesus. He is um, taken up with the high privilege of knowing God through the Son of God, Jesus personally. And so what I love is, is that after a life of um, faithful service, and where he could begin to doubt, he could begin to stop following because look at his life. He's, in a, he's, he's alone. He's in a prison colony on an island, on a rock, separated from people. He's separated from his church in Ephesus. What impact can he possibly have? Well, he's aware that he can have impact because he's still worshiping Jesus. And he's on, on the Sabbath, he's worshiping Jesus. And he's in the spirit. And so what does Jesus do? I love this. Jesus pulls him up, ushers him up, as it were, into a heavenly realm, and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. Jesus is standing among seven lampstands, and it appears that he has seven stars in his right hand. And this is not the same uh, uh, physical representation of Jesus that John is accustomed to. John walked with Jesus. You know, this human uh, uh, God in skin, 100% God, 100% man, if you will. He remembers that man, the man that bled and died on a Roman cross. But now he sees, he hears his voice in this vision. He turns and he sees Jesus. 
And there Jesus is. But what does he look like? He has white hair like snow. His eyes are like fire. His face is shining like the sun. Out of his mouth is a sharp two-edged, double-edged sword. He's robed and he has a golden sash across his chest. And he has feet like burnished bronze. And he speaks. And what does John do when he sees this visage of the risen Christ? He falls on his face, probably exactly what you would do and I would do. And he just probably, he's just, you know, on his face. Oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of God. I am a man undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I love this because here Jesus is in this rather striking, uncommon representation of himself that's pretty threatening, right? Just the idea of seeing someone with a double-edged sword coming out of their mouth. I mean, that's like horror movie stuff. John's on his face. What does Jesus do? And I love this. Jesus comes up to John, puts his right hand on John, his right hand now, the right hand of God that the five, the seven stars are in, puts his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. I love that. That's like, it's like, it's like this. This is, okay, Chuck Berry paraphrase. John, yep, it's really me. And I love you. Don't be afraid. And then he tells John to, uh, to write down everything, watch, I want you to watch, I want you to listen, and I want you to write down what you hear me say, and then I want you to send it to the seven churches. What seven churches? Well, they just so happen to be the seven churches in Turkey that likely started with the mother church in Ephesus, which John likely planted, and from that church, along the trade route in, uh, in ancient Turkey, along that trade route, more churches popped up as the gospel was spread. So he, Jesus, has a message for John to give to the angels of the seven churches. Most, common, um, most commentators believe that these angels, what's angel? The Greek word for angel is God's messenger. These are not actually super, uh, supernatural angels necessarily. They may be the pastors, the leaders of these seven churches, right? Uh, or it could have been John's stuck on Patmos. He cannot leave, but maybe he can have visitors. Someone came to get John's written letter, and maybe he wrote this letter seven times and provided seven copies to the messengers that would take these letters back and read them to the churches. If not, the entire book of Revelation and the Re book of all these seven letters were read in all seven churches. Okay, so just like we have God's word here, the message of God in written form, and it's been sent to us through the ages, written over 1,500 years by princes and paupers, and we have it. It's here, God's word, reliable, trustworthy. Here it is. It's been sent to us through messengers. So here we are. This, that's the context, right? And, uh, and so Jesus begins to dictate these letters, and this letter that we're looking at this morning is the letter to the church in Ephesus. So I want to focus on 
just what's in that letter, but I want you to understand where John is and how it is that he got there to even hear the dictation of this letter, understanding who it is that dictates this letter to him and how Jesus has approached John and said, do not fear. And then what does he do? He gives John instructions. John's job as an apostle is not over, even though he may be in his late 80s or 90s. Brothers and sisters, your job as messengers of the gospel of grace will never end. You always are valuable. You always are useful. You have no idea how effectual your prayers can be. If you can't leave your house, if you can't leave your living room, brothers and sisters, if we can be in the spirit and hear from God and respond through our hands and our feet and our mouths, even if it's prayer, and I don't say even as though that's the most minimal thing you could do. It's probably the greatest thing we could ever do is to be praying for others, praying for the church. So here we have it. And John is given this letter, and I want to focus on this letter, and I want to pull out three R's, okay? Um, in our culture, you know, especially in the educational system, there are three R's, aren't there? One of them doesn't even start with an R, which gives me a lot of room here this morning, doesn't it? You know, reading, writing, see, that doesn't start with an R either. And arithmetic, that doesn't start with an R. So somebody, it's so funny, that's like the, the little picture of, you know, the three R's of education. Well, they misspelled two of the words. It's like, who put this thing together? Well, this morning, I, I, I have two R's and then a stretch, okay? So it's still three R's. And I'm doing better than the educational one because two of my R's come right out of verse four and five in Revelations two. And you'll see why the third R uh, really fits. So the three R's are this, okay? Now listen, don't check out on me when I tell you these three R's. You're going to, you're gonna be tempted to. We have an enemy and he tries to distract us and cause us to check out right when God's word is being shared. So don't check out. The first R is remember. Scott and I were talking this morning. I better remember my three R's or I'm in trouble. The second R is repent. Boy, that's a churchy word, and you hear Chuck Berry say that almost every sermon that he preaches. It's going to pop up in there somewhere because I think that's how we live every day of our Christian life. And the third R is repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. That, those three R's are the three R's of the spiritual life. It's how we live. It's how we move and, and have our being in Christ, these three R's. And John hears them from Jesus himself and is commanded, listen to what I say, John, write it down and then share it with the church. Share it with the church. So that's where we are. So let me find it. And then I'm going to point out, that's this, we're going to camp on the three R's for a minute. So here's just a couple things I want you to see about this letter. First thing Jesus says, he says, this is, again, these are words to the church in Ephesus through the messenger of that church. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. Now, let's just stop, enduring patiently. You know, our, boy, we've, we've tidied up that word patient. That word patient means 
long-suffering, long-suffering. So patient endurance, man. So Jesus is telling John to tell the church in Ephesus, here's what I know about you, church. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. In a culture where not worshiping Caesar, not worshiping Domitian, results in all kinds of suffering. Even death, if you don't agree that the Roman emperor is God. And in these seven cities were temples for the emperor. And you would go to that temple and you'd have to confess that the emperor was God, was your God, and you worship him. And if you did that, you would get a certificate. And if you had that certificate, that opened up doors of employment, that opened up doors of provision, that opened up doors of privilege in that city. And without that certificate, there were closed doors. You were unable to work. You were unable to attend. You were unable to participate. So to take a stand for Christ was a really costly thing, much more costly than it is today in Orlando, Florida, where you can say, yes, I believe in Jesus. It doesn't cost very much these days, um, culturally, to say that. So what is Jesus telling this church? He's saying, look, I know your good works. I know you're standing for my name. I know that you're bearing up for my name's sake. And then he says, and you have not grown weary. He knows they haven't grown weary. But then he says this, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And that's a really interesting phrase. You know, and he says this, remember, he says, You've abandoned the love you have at first. So it's not that the thing you love has left you. It's that you have abandoned the thing you loved at first. And what is Jesus talking about in this letter? It's fairly clear that the church of Jesus followers and Jesus worshipers has abandoned their first love, and that's God. That's Jesus himself. Church, you've left your first love. That's me. You've abandoned me. You've walked away from me. And yet, look at all the good works he commends them for. Is it possible to do good works and have walked away from the motivation that you should have to do those works? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can be in a Bible study, you can go serve the poor, and you can do it all while you're also walking away from your first love because your motivation to serve and to give and to stand for Christ is no longer, it gradually becomes more and more, not the fact that you love God for God, but now you're loving God for maybe what he can give you. You love him for his provision, for his blessings. You don't love him. You want his stuff, which is the parable of the prodigal sons, right? Both sons didn't want their father. They just wanted their father's stuff. Chuck Berry, can you hear that this morning? 
is that true of your own heart? Do you do things, even pastor, even say, yes, I'll preach. Why? So that I can go to sleep tonight knowing that I've done a good work. Is that my motivation? So that someone will say, someone, maybe, you know, one person will say, hey, good sermon. Yes, I can go to sleep now. I'm approved of. Is that why I'm here? Lord, let it not be so. Let me be here because there's an audience of one and I desire to pour myself out, my life out for the sake of that one. Do I do that perfectly? Oh, absolutely not. My heart's tainted. I'm tainted with other loves. All it takes is a Tesla to pass me on the road. I'm tainted. I want a car whose back doors go I want one of those. I'm tainted when I walk down my street and see three other, let's be honest, 15 other houses that have a nicer lawn than I have. I'm tainted. I'm so tempted to be pulled away from my first love. Why is that? Because my heart's broken. I have a condition. <laughs> I'm fallen. I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve. And it's super interesting that in this letter, the garden is mentioned. That last verse, the garden is mentioned. Those that conquer will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Wow. So I want to read Jeremiah 10. Um, I listened to this passage in, I was, I have a Bible app that I, um, I don't daily listen to it but I listened to it a couple times this week. And so there's a passage out of Jeremiah 10. And if I can find it, I'm going to read it to you because I didn't put a bookmark in there. Here we go. I heard this this week and it was just, wow. So listen, if Jesus is not on the throne of your heart, if Jesus isn't your first love, and we usually say that love comes from our heart, comes from the core of our being, um, that's the desire, right? If somebody says they love you, you hope it's coming from their true center, from who they truly are. If Jesus, if God, if Jesus himself, who is God, is not on the throne, if he's not your first love, then he's your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth love. That means seven other loves are first, are ahead of him. <laughs> what is that? Scripture says that's idolatry, people. It's idolatry. So did Chuck Berry commit idolatry this week when the Tesla drove by? Yes! I'm guilty before a holy, righteous God of idolatry. When I thought this morning, gee, I hope people love my sermon and therefore they will love me. Idolatry. I'm worshiping the idol of people's approval. I'm an idolater in the depths of my being. Am I saved? Yes, I am. Why? Because I believe Jesus is God and I believe he came and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross to pay the penalty that my idolatry even today deserves. And I've put my trust in him. Is it perfect trust? No. <laughs> it's growing trust. I've been given a new heart and just like my little itty-bitty Theodore has a little itty-bitty heart, his little heart is strengthening. All he does is sleep and eat. What's going on with this kid? He's growing. He's growing. He's growing so fast. His little hands already come out of a little outfit that on the day he was born, on the day he was born a week ago, his little hands were in here. Now they're like coming out. It's like, wow, this little guy's growing fast. Our spiritual hearts have to grow. 
When we trust Christ, we are newborns. And guess what? It takes a lifetime to mature. So are you all growing? Absolutely. If you're in Christ, you're growing because God loves you too much to let you stay the same. So listen to this, Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah is speaking about, adult, uh, about idolatry. Hear the word of the Lord, that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. I love that. I'm going, there's the Halloween reference. Scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's what their gods are like. They fashion a god out of something that's part of the created world. And then they start treating it like it's a God. And they fashion it with precious metals. <laughs> he said their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried. The idol has to be carried from place to place. For they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who might not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. None. But that's what we do. We are idol-prone people. Because in the garden... Adam and Eve saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it looked good for food. And it promised them, based on the lie of an enemy who was sowing lies, said, if you eat these, you will be wise like God. And so they exchanged the truth of God's word who had never been false to them, who had never told them a lie, even a shade of a lie. He'd always been absolutely truthful with them in the garden. They exchanged God's word for the lies of this serpent and they ate the fruit and they fell. And that word fall has multiple meanings. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, we have the deep propensity that they have to see a shiny piece of fruit that's hanging from a tree or a shiny new car that's been banged out of metal and put together with all kinds of machinery and it drives by and I'm tempted to go, ooh, if I had that, I'd be a better person. I'd be a happier person. I'd be a more satisfied person. What am I doing? I'm buying the very first lie and Satan has never had to come up with a new one because that one just keeps working. The same old, same old. All God has to do is put something in front of my eyes and I'm swept away. I'm swept away. So what does Jesus tell John? He said, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Listen, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. They're being persecuted. And what does Jesus tell them? Remember from where you've fallen. Church, 2020, do you ever remember from where you've fallen? What does that mean? Does that mean you fell somewhere like when, back when you were 10 or 20 years? No. Where has humankind fallen? We once walked with God in the cool of the day. We once had 
perfect intimacy with God. Man and woman had perfect intimacy with one another. There was no tension. There was no conflict. There was no sin. There was no blame shifting. There was no shame. It was idyllic. That's where we've fallen from. What is Jesus telling these believers in Ephesus? Remember from where you've fallen. Do you ever think about that? Jesus is challenging us this morning. Remember from where we have fallen as humans. We have fallen far. And listen, if you start every day remembering from where you've fallen, you tend to be a little more humble that day. You tend to be a little more dependent on God that day. You tend to ask God to give you strength and courage and direction more that day when you remember from where you have fallen. Does that make sense? So what's the second thing he says? He says, repent, repent, just turn. Repent, again, a churchy word, but gosh. See, really, these three R's are all about an attitude of turning away, turning away from your idols and turning back towards God, acknowledging and agreeing with him that, yes, I have an idolatrous heart. It's, it's so idolatrous. I'm so easily distracted. I'm learning about this. This is technology. Now, I'm not trying to demonize the cell phone this morning because just about everything that technology has blessed humanity with, we have taken and misused. It's like back when they invented the washing machine, it's like, great, I don't have to spend hours washing my clothes. Now I'll have more time for God. Now I'll have more time for other people. Now I'll have more time to serve. So what do we do? We have more time. What do we do? We spend all that time on ourselves. <laughs> so this is an incredible device designed by really bright human beings. And it is I don't know if you know this or not. I'm learning. There, there's actually a field of study in academia called persuasive technology. What is persuasive technology? It's how you can design something so that it in itself will persuade people to do what you want them to do. And I don't know about you, without going into all that, all I know is that if I wake up in the morning and I want to spend some time with God and I pick this up first, my first hour of my day is 10 minutes in the Word, 50 minutes on this. Because it is designed to grab your attention and to hold it. And to hold it. And ultimately to separate you from your money because it's been monetized. It's a great piece of technology. Can it be used? Can it be redeemed? Absolutely, it can be redeemed. You can use it in a way that builds you up and strengthens you. But I'm, I'm troubled. I'm troubled for the world we live in that Theodore is going to grow up in. You know, when I walk, even, even through the halls of Orangewood, like at lunch or during a study hall, and every single student is on their iPad or on their phone. And look, I'm not speaking negatively of Orangewood. There are wonderful tools for technology. There are wonderful tools when you can't go to school because of COVID and teachers can teach remotely and you can watch the classes, you can pull up the notes, you can even take tests on them. It's an amazing gift and an amazing tool. But we have to be so mindful. We have to remember from where we've fallen. We are idol worship 
factories. <laughs> That's our propensity. And what love gets shoved out first? It's God. He gets shoved out first. And hundreds of other things can take his place. And if I'm honest, they do take his place in my life. So what keeps me in check? I have to remember and I have to repent and I have a Holy Spirit that reveals to me the truth and reminds me, the Holy Spirit reminds me of the truth. And it does seem like the more time I spend with him, the more I hear his voice. Could that be? The more time I spend with him in the spirit, the more I hear his voice during the rest of the parts of the day. I want to read out of my devotion. This was from two weeks ago. And this brings us to the last point. Repeat, do the works you did at first. What does that mean? Well, what, it, what the Spirit brought to my mind was, how was I when I first came to Christ? Now, I get it. Some of you may not know Jesus. You know, you're, you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity. The majority of people in this room have had that experience. You came to Christ at some point in your life. How did you live when that was happening, when God was revealing the truth of the gospel to you at that time? Listen to this. This is just out of my devotion. Um, Jesus tells this church in Ephesus that he knows them, says good things. Then he says, but you have abandoned your first love. Then he gives them instructions. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, from where did mankind fall? From the Garden of Eden, where the tree of life is. Repent, and then do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, repeat. Three R's. Remember, repent, repeat. Not a bad three R's for you to remember every day of your life. <laughs> remember from where you've fallen, repent, and then do the things you did at first. Repeat the things you did at first. So here's where I went with that. The new personal awareness of my Savior who died for me, taking my punishment on himself lovingly, experiencing personal rejection and scorn for me, experiencing injustice and hypocrisy, dying, buried, dead. Then he rose from the grave into eternal life. My first love for Jesus, what did that love lead me to do? And I want you to, if you can, put yourself where you were when you first began to understand that the gospel was for you and that Jesus was who he said he was. Said, my first love for Jesus, what did that love lead me to do? I chose to change very practical things in my life. I changed what my mind occupied itself with. I became preoccupied with God, his story, his word, his work. I changed the places I frequented. I changed the people I spent time with. I changed careers completely. I changed my focus, my practices, my trajectory, my friends. I began to see things differently through a new lens, through a new perspective. Its newness began to change me. To move towards Jesus meant moving away from all that was my center before. I got a new center, a new core, a new heart, a new motivation, a new drive, a new purpose to live for something new, someone new, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I want my life to be lived to the fullest. There's a motivation deep within that yearns to be fully spent, exhausted, used up, lived completely out for an ultimate purpose, to cross the finish line with nothing left. 
And then I wrote out this prayer. Lord Jesus, I am on one hand nearer to you than ever at this brief moment in this line of thought in time and space focused on your word, Revelations 2, in the spirit, and yet, and yet I'm expecting to be swept away by the day's demands, duties, dialogues. I know that you empower me, but as the waking hours take hold, I feel like I'm gradually going to lose touch of you, lose sight of you, become gradually motivated by lesser loves, pulled, drawn apart, separated, scattered in 10 different directions. I feel atomized by life's demands, spread too thinly across all things to be of any true significance. The thoughts of the I am's get overcome by the question, am I? Am I? Am I loved? Am I forgiven? Am I approved? Am I valuable? Energize me for your purposes this day. Focus my heart and mine to be stayed on you. Fix me. Affix me to you. You are my firm foundation. Affirm in me that which is absolutely true. Let me live fully for you and your glory. But I can't. I can't. But you can, and you will, and you are. Anything, anywhere, anytime, Lord, I'm yours. Have your way in and through me today. I am because you are the I am. Be pleased to use me up this day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. All the glory I give to you, I affirm that it is yours. Praise be to you, O God. Enable every facet of my being this day to be about you, your plans and purposes, your agenda behind all my agendas. Shine, Jesus, shine in and through me this very day, this very early hour. Thank you, Jesus, in advance for what this day holds that will honor you and your name. Where in the world did that come from? Because the last thing I want you to do this morning is go, wow, Chuck is so spiritual. (laughs) You know where that came from? It came from meditating on the three R's, remembering from where I've fallen, repenting of my idol-making nature, and then repeating, do what I did at first. And I've been thinking about that. Do I have play places that I need to change? I remember being told early on that when you become a Christian, you have to change your play, you may have to change your playground and your playmates. And what's interesting about the Christian life is we do it every day and we gradually drift away because that's our nature, that's our tendency. We gradually will drift away unless we do the three R's And when you drift away, things become ordinary and stale and not very exciting, invigorating. The car you've been driving for the last six years becomes dull and boring and you see the Tesla and you're like, wow, I would like, I can imagine myself driving that. (laughs) See, it's not always a car that we see out of the corner of our eye. It's not always a car. It can be anything. Any area of your life where you're experiencing dissatisfaction, if you see something that could improve that, could give you satisfaction, you begin to long for it. And that's how we begin to, we want God's stuff. We want what he can give us more than we want God because we have bought into the lie that if you just eat this fruit, then you'll be satisfied. Nope, that's not true. So the church in Ephesus, John's church, if you will, what had they done? They, they were doing so many good things, and I think they truly were, and Jesus is honestly, truly, sincerely commending them, but 
This one thing I have against you, you've lost your first love. You've abandoned it. You've walked away from it. Or you're walking away from it. In Orangewood, what I want to challenge you with this morning, how is it that you may be walking away from Jesus while busy doing the Orangewood things? See, we're prone. This letter was not just written to the church in Ephesus. It was given to the Apostle John to put in Holy Scripture so that it could be read this morning to you and to me. I need this morning, I need more than any of you, hear me, I need more than any of you to remember, to repent, and to repeat. I need that. One of your pastors, and all I'm sharing with you this morning is you need it too, more than you know. And so that's the application. That's the application, church. Remember? Repent and repeat. So maybe you're, a new, maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you've been a believer for decades. Maybe you're not a believer yet. And that could change today by acknowledging to God that you can't find any satisfaction in this world. You're trying. And some things seem to promise satisfaction at least for a week or two or maybe a couple months, but then it fades and you're looking for something else. What is that hunger? What you're hungering for is intimacy with God. And it comes through repentance, acknowledging that you're an idol factory, admitting, agreeing with God that that's true of your broken heart and you need a redeemer. You need a new heart. And that comes through faith in Jesus, his son. He sent his son to bring that word to you. And if you repent of your sinfulness and you receive Jesus as your savior, your Lord, your master, your king, he promises, he promises he will give you eternal life. He will give you his Holy Spirit who will then come in and begin to illuminate God's word and you will understand it in ways you never have before. So let's close with a prayer. Pray with me. Father, <clears throat> Father, I know that through faith in you, through trust in the gospel, you have promised that one day I will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's amazing. The only reason I will be an overcomer is because you have overcame the world and that I have put myself in you through faith. Father, thank you for that good news. I pray this morning that you would challenge in each of our hearts, help us to remember, to repent afresh, maybe for the first time, and to repeat to decide this morning that we are going to remember, repent, and repeat this week. We pray, I pray that you would remind us of these three R's every day, every hour of every day. Father, keep us in dependence of you. That will happen as we approach you with repentant spirits in an ongoing way. And Father, what do you promise to do? You promise to meet us. You promise to give us deeper intimacy. You promise to bring us deeper into your heart if we continually acknowledge our need for you and seek you, you tell us, if you seek me, I will come near to you. That's a beautiful thing. You've also promised that if we are in Christ, you will never let us go and that we will be able to patiently endure. Father, thank you for the gospel. We love you. Thank you. Meet us where we are. Give us courage to trust and believe your word. I pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.